Would you open your Bibles, please, to the book of Matthew? I don't need this in my pocket. Hey, can I ask you're turning your, uh, in your, within your Bibles to the book of Matthew, can I, can I kind of throw out an informal prayer request? Do you mind if I do that? Uh, just, and it's a little bit unusual. I'd like you to pray for me. That, uh, I'm, I'm going to leave here in uh, a few hours. I'm going to fly over to Chicago area just for Monday, and then I'll fly back early Tuesday morning and be back here about noon. So it's just a quick trip, but I'll be, so it, but it will be some late night, early morning flying, and then some driving, and then I, I have a, as it, as it stands, I am supposed to speak Monday morning and Monday night at uh, this conference outside of Chicago, and I would just appreciate you guys uh, praying with me and for me about that, if you don't mind. Remember where, 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 where you go, we go, right? And so uh, I'm, I'm taking you with me, and uh, I, I appreciate your prayers. Have you found Matt, the book of Matthew yet? So the book of Matthew, as we, as, we inter- as we came back to it last week, we recognized that the book of Matthew, the central theme in the book of Matthew is the kingdom of heaven. That's the, the big theologically governing idea of the book. But the intent, the, I would mm, I wrestle with this, the message, the intent of the book is to call the reader to respond to the kingdom of God. It's not just information about the kingdom of God. The intent is for us to come to this gospel of Matthew and respond to the truth of the kingdom as a disciple. Somebody say disciple. To respond to this, the truth of the kingdom as a disciple. To become a follower of Jesus. That's the intent of this text is to tell us what it means to be a follower of Jesus and, and how we can do it. What, it what, what is required of us as a follower of Jesus Christ. Last week, we we picked this up in Matthew chapter 3, and you can open up right there, Matthew chapter 3. We read the first few uh, verses of that, and we saw John the Baptist preaching that repentance, everybody say repentance, that repentance is the first step toward following Jesus. And that repentance was a demand for a total commitment to God. And that this message, that repentance, and I said this, I try to say it with a smile because so often the word repentant, repent or repentance is said, or we think it should be said, with some sort of a furrowed brow and uh, maybe a, a, a hoarse voice and certainly louder than it needs to be. Right? But repentance is this message that John was giving, and, and we hear that people were coming to him from all parts of the area, from Jerusalem and from Judea and from across the Jordan, that this idea of repentance was getting attention, not because it was a new fad or a new idea, but here's singularly what we saw last week and what I believe, is that the message of repentance is actually a message that there is real hope for real change. That God calls us to repent, God calls us to change, and He empowers us to do so. Our lives do not have to be the same, and they must not be the same. That's the command to repent. The repent means I I let go of, I turn away from everything else, and I turn absolutely 100% toward the Lord. And that we saw repentance is symbolized by water baptism, an act that expresses that our old identity, our old way of life, has been drowned. 
Baptism is another one of those things that has been sort of dressed up religiously over the years. And, you know, you wear a white gown and you get a certificate and you play fancy music. All of that's fine. Sometimes you get sprinkled and it's very lovely. All of that's fine. I don't want to, I would never be disparaging of anyone's experience, especially if it was, if it's sacred and wonderful. Praise God. I love that you did that. But it, we need to make sure that we see that, that the origin of baptism, that even the past tense of the word literally means to be drowned. And that and, and when, when, so, so baptism is an expression of my old life, my old way of life, my old identity, literally being drowned and washed away. You must be born again. This week, we, we pick this up. In, chap, in verse 7, it's this, the next paragraph. Verses 7 through 12 of, of Matthew chapter 3. It's the rest of, of John the Baptist's message here that Matthew records for us. Now John this week will explain that the coming kingdom only gives us two options. Two choices. To be bathed in the Holy Spirit or to face burning judgment. Welcome to church. Aren't you glad you came to church this morning? <laughs> Let's lean into this because it's it's this is truth. Remember, this is these were mess. This is a message. <sighs> Golly, we've got to say this carefully. This message, I realize, to some you might say, "Oh no, can't you just skip this part and hurry on to the um, uh, uh, take my yoke upon thee for my burden is light part? Can't you get to that part? Hey, hey, Dav, yeah, why don't you just shift right away and get to the you are the light of the world, and a city on a hill cannot be hidden, and be all Shakespearean about it. Well, here's the deal. All of that is true. Jesus' commandments are, are, they do fit us well, and they do liberate us from excessive bondage and burden, and they're not heavy, and they don't weigh us down. And you are the light of the world, and you are the salt of the earth if you come and become a follower of Jesus. But you don't get to skip the repent part and become the light part. You don't skip the repent part and then put on the easy yoke part. How you get to the easy yoke part, how you get to the part where you are the light of the world and you are the salt of the earth and you are, and you are able to, to walk with Jesus and know his counsel, how you get to you, 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 the first step toward following Jesus, being a disciple, is repentance. And there is glad reasons for it, and there are grave reasons for it. There's a gladness and a gravity to this command to repent. Now, John is going to take us into the gladness and the gravity options. Here they are. It starts off in verse 7. John uh, warns his audience that wrath is coming. Boy, I'll tell you, these are, this, kind of, this is just the kind of message that every paperback in seminary said, don't preach that one. Okay? Wrath is coming. <laughs> oh, just say it because it's true. It's in the Bible. Might as well just say it. Ready? Say it. Wrath is coming. This is serious. And I, I, it's, it's, we've got to look at it. He says, uh, but when he saw many of the Pharisees and the Sadducees coming for baptism, he said to them, you brood of vipers. You offspring of poisonous snakes. Welcome to church. Yeah. You, 
you, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Now, he's talking, he tells us, Matthew tells us that John the Baptist is speaking to these Pharisees and the Sadducees, that these are religious leaders who had come together, and we see them uh, in our mind's eye standing on the, the just perhaps the, some of the crowd on the banks of the Jordan River observing what's going on. Who were these people? Uh, we can explain this more as time goes on, but uh, Sadducees and Pharisees were, were two, uh, represents two parts of, of, of Jewish religious and political uh, groups, sects, S-E-T-S-E-C-T-S, sects that were a part of, that kind of were influence groups. They, they, they rose or they came to being in second uh, and third century-ish B.C., during the time after Alexander the Great uh, and his empire separated and his, and his separating his, his generals took the north and the south, that because of, because of Alexander the Great and his influence, the Greek culture, bega- Greek culture and Greek power began to encroach upon, further upon Palestine, the area around Palestine, Israel. So... The, the infestation, the encroachment of Hellenization, which included, which included uh, uh, paganism, pantheism, uh, sensuality, licentiousness, all kinds of stuff, began to encroach upon Palestine, uh, upon the people of Israel, who not, not too long before that had come out of exile because of licentiousness and idolatry. So they are really upset about the infection of idolatry and licentious behavior, and so they, they doubled down on the tradition of the elders. They doubled down on the oral Torah, that, gate, that, 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 that list of rules that was built around the Pentateuch, and they, they, in order to keep themselves separate, they doubled down on their law observances. And it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a relatively good motivation, but, but it's still flavored with human agenda and human pride and human religion. So it's this, this, this external blend of be- good attempt at religion, but meddled with flawed human arrogance. But it, the idea is we're going to stay separate. That's the Pharisees. They lived amongst the, the people. They, they ruled the synagogues. And this is what they did. This was their idea. They were protecting the laws of Moses. They were separate. They were, they were Pharisees. The Sadducees also uh, were, were a part of or, or a result of the encroachment of Hellenization, but they were affected by the political powers. The Sadducees were a group of people that only believed in the law of Moses, the Pentateuch. They didn't accept anything outside of that. They didn't believe in the resurrection of the dead or in miracles, angels, or spirits at all. Their, their primary were just the high priests who had political power and wanted to maintain good graces with the political powers around them. That's these two people. They come to, they come to the to the banks of the river, and John the Baptist is crying out that people repent. He sees them and he says, What are you doing here? That's a, a big paraphrase. But the paraphrase works if, for all of us this morning. Now I'm not calling you a Pharisee or you a Sadducee. But we all have our own religious and political ideas and baggage that we come to Jesus. We come to the scriptures. And John the Baptist says, what are you really doing here? What's your motivation? What do you really want? Now, what he says to them is, 
<laughs> who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? It's actually, it might sound like this. Can it actually be the case that you have been persuaded to believe that the divine judgment is near and you've been stirred to try to escape it? He's, it's a sarcastic kind of a tone. Like, oh, you're, he knows that they're probably just there to check on him and they're probably hoping that it's just Gentiles being baptized and converted to become Jews, but it turns out the message is much more broad, much more deep, much more powerful than that. And now he, he turns the message of the command to repent upon them and does so with a very significant lever or leverage. That repentance, the, the repentance that he's offering is the means to escape Wrath. Wrath. He warns of a wrath to come. This language that he says, the wrath that is to come, he's not just saying the wrath is, is going to be directed at them. He says that this wrath is, is to come, that it is coming in the future. But when he says the wrath to come, it means it's, it's, it's not here yet, it's coming, but it is certain. Somebody say, it's certain. But what does he mean by wrath? And I, I, I want to be careful here not to become too, uh, I don't want to anthropomorphize God. I don't want to become, say something silly here. But it's important that you hear this correctly and not in the wrong way. Don't Because he is talking about the wrath of God on sin. But we hear the word wrath. You should not in your mind think that, that, that there's some sort of picture of God as an angry drunk. Who has, who, has, who has given over to the weakness of human anger and now has just had it. He's going to blow his top and thrash, thrash his arms around until he's exhausted. No, that's not, this is not that. There is a word in the Greek for human wrath that really does speak of when you and I lose our temper, blow our top, and spill, spill everything out. But this is not wild, unhinged emotion. This word describes something that comes from a settled disposition. This is measured and intentional response to evil. An intentional response to evil. Like a judge who hears the case before him, digests the seriousness of it, and then pronounces a very serious sentence. He doesn't even have to raise his voice for the sentence to be severe. It's a measured and intentional response. It is the, John is saying that divine justice is coming. We should not think that God is just mildly displeased with sin. Rather, he is totally and vigorously opposed to it. God will act in opposition to sin. But Jesus came to save us from our sins. We saw this already even in the birth narratives. Merry Christmas. Jesus came to save us from sin's power and sin's penalty. But it's through repentance and faith in Christ that we are saved from sin. But apart from repentance and faith in Christ, we are still subject to sin's power and penalty. Without repentance, there is wrath. Furthermore, verse 8, this is the, the, the 
the only imperative, the only real direct command in the passage this morning. Verse 8 says that repentance must have lasting results. Somebody say lasting results. Therefore, John says, therefore, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. What does that mean? Of the most literal wording I found fascinating, very few versions have it just because it, whatever. The, the literal wording is bear fruit worthy of repentance. Every, but but I, I'm kind of glad because every time North Americans are, we hear the word worthy, we think earn something, perform. Are you worthy? You know? To him who is worthy, you know, whatever. Now, but this is this is this just means like the amplified says it this way: produce fruit that is consistent with repentance. Or the, the New Living says it really simply: prove by the way that you live that you have repented of your sins. Bearing fruit means to show outward evidence of an inward reality or an inward change. Bearing fruit means you can see on the outside the evidence of what is true or has happened on the inside. We all understand that, right? How do you know? How do you know if it's an apple tree? By the apples. If you come to the apple tree and there are grapes, that is not an apple tree. It's not. <laughs> it's not a grape tree either. That's different. You got yourself a situation. How do you know if it's a pear tree? You look and see if there are. You know if the tree is alive and it's and it's and the and the inside is healthy and right by what you see on the outside. It doesn't. A tree can't fake it. Trees can't fake it. We can. Trees don't fake it. They can't fake fruit. The only way there can be fruit is if something has really happened on the inside. How do you know if it's an apple tree? You look for apples. How do you know if it's a pear tree? You look for pears. How do you know if how do we know if you have repented? You looks out if you look if you got fruit, you got apples. Live in such a way that people can see you've turned from your sin. Your life should demonstrate evidence of a difference. There should be a difference in the way that you live because you have repented. You're not earning salvation. You're not accumulating a pile of good works to impress anybody. You are simply manifesting, evidencing the change that has happened inside you. What does this mean in terms of how we follow Jesus? It means that repentance is not a mood or a moment. It means repentance changes our lives. It doesn't mean that everything changes at once, but it does mean that nothing can ever be the same. Your whole life may not change in a moment, but the course and the direction of your life will. When you and I repent, we change the guiding principle of our lives. When we live under sin, when we are committed to sin, when sin is the guiding principle of our life, 
we act like there is no God. There is no one to whom I will be accountable. There is no supreme moral authority. In fact, I probably assume that I am the arbiter of right and wrong. I get to decide. Psalm 14.1 says that the, says the fool says in his heart, there is no God. And, they, and that person exhibits that guiding principle by they are corrupt and they have committed abominable deeds. But when repentance, when I change my life, when, when the guiding principle changes, when I repent, it means I believe in God. I believe in his supreme moral goodness. I believe he is right. I believe he is God. And I live like, I live like I will give an account of my life to him. So to the follower of Jesus, John says, live like you have repented. Verse 9 says, everyone gets to repent. Me, Mrs. Dav is excited. Guess what? Everyone gets to repent. Here's what, here, here's what happened. John kind of gives a rhetorical question to the Pharisees and Sadducees there. He says, and do not suppose that you can say to yourselves, we have, we have Abraham as our father. For I say to you that out of these stones, God is able to raise up children for Abraham. The, the sentiment, not only in religious leaders, but it's part of a kind of Jewish history, was that they were okay. They kind of had, they, they were literally grandfathered in because of Father Abraham had many sons, and many sons had, and I have one of them, and so are you, so I don't need to repent. Ha ha. Like, hey, I'm good. Do you know, do you, do you know, do you know, do you know, Abraham is totally my father? I, I have been, I have been uh, going to this church for like seven years. Uh, I have all of Bethel and Hillsong on playlist. And wait until you see my version memes. They're so good. My family, my family's been a part of this church for like 14 decades. That's a long time. My great-great-great-uncle on my wife's side planted this church 14 decades ago. All that's fine, but do you got any apples? All that's great, but do you got any apples? Is there any difference in your life? Are you living like you have repented? Is there any nourishment coming out of your life? Everybody gets to repent. And we don't even, the other thing is the Pharisees that Jesus said, the, told the parable of the Pharisee. Remember he told the parable of the Pharisee who went into prayer and he said, um, dear God, thank you that I am not as bad as that guy. <laughs> we don't get to talk about our resume. We don't get to compare ourselves with someone else. We get to repent. There's no loophole. We bring nothing to the bargaining table, nothing of our resume, nothing of our accomplishment, nothing of how, of how shiny we think we are. You know what else we don't bring to the bargaining table? Our failures. 
or our shame or our regrets. Here's the good news. You, the, when, you, when we say well, you bring nothing to the bargaining table, you literally bring nothing. You come as you are. He takes you as you are. And you will never, ever, ever, ever be the same. Everybody gets to repent. Everyone gets to have their old life drowned and washed away. Everyone gets to be born again. Verse 10, John warns again his audience that repentance produces or must produce good works. He's still looking for them apples. He says, the axe is already laid at the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree, uh uh-oh, everybody say every tree. Therefore, every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. What, is it, what does it mean when the axe is laid to the root of the tree? Pretty clear. He's saying that, what's, that, that, that the wrath that's coming, the judgment that's coming, is not a simple tree trimming. It is the absolute removal of the tree. Every tree that does not bear good fruit. Every tree means, means this is universal. There are no exceptions. No one will get away with a refusal to repent. Doesn't that just rub against some of the core of what it means to be an American? Can't tell me, unless God, I'm, you know, don't tread on me. Not even you, God. Well, no one gets away with a refusal to repent. What's required of the tree? Good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit, meaning a life that is keeping with repentance. And, but look at that. John calls bearing fruit, keeping with repentance, a life that li- that's lived like it has repented. He calls that good. He calls it good. Repentance only leads to good things. You know, the only result of repentance and living that way is good it produces good works, a good, a good thinking, good speaking, good relating. John's message at the, at the Jordan may not have been, he may not have been as handsome as Joel Olstein saying, you know, come live your best life now. But in saying repent, he really is inviting us all to our best life now and forever. Because keeping with repentance really leads to the best life. It's a life that is lived pleasing to God. That's good. It's also a life that is that when lived that way is good to others and good for them. Husbands who live like they have repented are faithful to their wives. And they're nice to them. <laughs> and wives. No, 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 no. <laughs> Families who live like they have repented build intentionally a family culture that is loving and honorable and excellent and honest and humble. And they pass on. They change what it means to be that family name. 
supervisors, managers, business owners. You, you, living like you have repented means you treat people honestly. It's such a cheap shot, but let's just go there. What if politicians live like they'd repented? Sorry, cheap shot of the day because it was sitting right there like low-hanging fruit. But if you live like you repented, you'll, you'll speak the truth. You'll keep your word. You pick up your neighbor's trash instead of kicking your trash into their yard. Think about it. Think how wonderfully practical it would be to just do this. And it's, it's the most joyful and peaceful for your own soul. On the other hand, what's the consequence of not repenting? Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Okay? Just let the Bible speak for itself. If there's no fruit, no evidence of life, no life change, you look dead, you act dead. What do you do with wood that is dead? John makes it clear how this will happen, but he really makes it clear by whom. Somebody's coming. Oh, boy. And that's when we get to verse 11. Oh, I'm glad it's only 12, 16. Here's verse 11. John says, as for me, I baptize you with water for repentance. He's telling them that a mightier one is coming with a mightier baptism. John says, as for me, I baptize you with water for repentance. Okay, so we all know, what's the last name of John? The Baptist. <laughs> right? Right? That's his last name. Why do we call him John the Baptist? Because we, we associate his ministry with the baptism. Oh, that's the guy that did that. John, he's the guy that put people in the water. Is my mom still in the room? Oh, she, caught, she was already with me for service. Whew. We know John, he, John says, I baptize with water. You, I, you associate my ministries with the symbol and the act of water baptism. But, he said, somebody else is coming. The first thing he says is he is mightier than I. And in fact, he said, I am not even fit to remove his sandals. Why does he say I'm not fit to remove his sandals? That's not just a euphemism. That is literally if... um, uh, in, in that day, a Hebrew servant, if, we're, if Aaron is my Hebrew servant, it was unlawful, it was unacceptable for me, for, for, for me to expect a Hebrew servant to take my shoes off for me. That was just too low. You can wash the dishes. But none of this shoe tight. That was just, that was, that was, that, that was the lowest of the low. John says, I, I, the difference between us is so much, I'm not even worthy to do that. So on one hand, it looks like John is differentiating himself by saying, I'm just lower than the low. But really what he is saying is, <laughs> Jesus is greater than the greatest. He is so much greater than me. I'm not even worthy for that. He is so great. He is so magnificent. And he, he is so mighty. And then he says, this is what he will do. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. 
Jesus will bring his followers into vital, living, life-changing contact with the Holy Spirit. That's how Jesus is identified. Let's just, I want to just, I don't know if you might be Reformed background, classical Pentecostal, charismatic, you don't even know what your background is, doesn't matter. But you might say, well, John the Baptist is called John the Baptist. Why don't we call Jesus the baptizer? Because he is. We call him the Christ because he's, the, he's the, actually he's the anointed one who has come to share that same anointing, that same spirit with us. That's why he's called the Christ. That's another day. But Jesus will bring, his whole mission is to bring his followers into vital, living, life-changing contact with the Holy Spirit. Jesus' baptism is as connected to his ministry as John's is to his. To follow Jesus is to yield to his baptism in the Spirit. Therefore, we must recognize that right away that Matthew is presenting spirit baptism as that which defines and determines discipleship. Spirit baptism defines and determines discipleship, which means, dear friends, it is not an elective. It is not an add-on, and it certainly is not merely some sort of denominational emphasis. And no, he's not, in case, well, I think, I think he's, honey, I think he's talking about tongues. No, we're not talking about the expression of the experience. We're talking about the promise. There's lots of powerful expressions of spirit baptism, but that's not, the promise isn't the expression. The promise is the person. To, be, to come to Jesus and, and, and say, well, no, I don't want, and not receive the overflowing wash of the Holy Spirit is to miss what it means to be a disciple. You simply are going to follow a story or a moral or, a, or rules, but Jesus didn't come to do that. He came to immerse you in the Holy Spirit himself for a vital, powerful, life-changing experience that will identify you forever as a follower of Jesus and empower you and enrich you and transform you to be so. More on that later. But the second part, he says he'll, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. Now, in my tradition, uh, I'm a, in, traditionally, as a classical Pentecostal, my, my understanding would be that the proper way to say Holy Spirit and fire is to say Holy Ghost and fire. <laughs> yeah, no, they're not, not a long eye, more of an awe, okay? It's Holy Ghost and fire. And, and what that means, especially in, in historically in the last several decades, people of the Pente in, in classical Pentecostalism has, have understood this to mean primarily that Holy Ghost and fire, that fire, fire is a reference to the Holy Spirit's purifying, uh, energizing work. And they see that as manifest in Acts chapter 2. And, and on the day of Pentecost, one of the expressions of the Spirit was this manifest presence of God in fire. I don't disagree with the principle of any of that. I love it all. I want more of it. Right? I, I love me some Holy Ghost and fire. I want more of that. We need more of that. Don't have time to talk about that today. But is that 
is, is in the nuance of what John is saying, does he, is, does he mean, hey, I'm going to give you the Holy Ghost and fire. Does he mean that? Or what else is he saying? He's actually, if you look at the whole, the whole paragraph, he is saying that your response to Jesus will determine the outcome. He presents two outcomes. And he really does. And I, I believe that in this context, holy, he'll baptize you in the Holy Spirit and with fire. means that he's coming with the baptism. He is coming to bring an experience. And which one you have you, depends on how you respond to Jesus. We see this as he unpacks it, as he restates what he just said. Verse 12, his winnowing fork is in his hand. And he will thoroughly clear the threshing floor. Someone say thoroughly. He already said every tree. Now he says the threshing floor will be thoroughly cleared. He, and no one is left out. Everyone, everyone will give an account of their lives to Jesus Christ. Everyone. He says his winnowing fork is in his hand. And so the idea is that he's, if, I'm, if, I'm, if, I'm, uh, if I'm harvesting wheat or whatever, the idea is he takes this fork and he throws it up into the air and the, the, the heavy wheat falls to the ground of the threshing floor and is gathered. It comes home. It gath- he gathers it and he puts it in his barn. He keeps that. But the chaff, that which does not have worth, that it, it is lighter, it doesn't have any nourishing value, it has no fruit, it doesn't have any nourishing value, it's lighter, and when it's thrown into the air, it blows. And then as it blows away, it's gathered and thrown into the fire. That's how they did that. So John is saying, he's coming to baptize with the Holy Spirit. Even now, his winnowing fork is in his hand, and he is separating those who, who will be wheat and those who will be chaff. And, the, and, and how you know is how you decide to respond You can respond to Jesus with repentance and faith. And the promise is he will immerse you. He will whelm you. He will wash you in his Holy Spirit. And that will be something that affects you and transforms you forever. Forever. 20 billion years from now in the new creation, I'm still going to be full of the Holy Ghost. I'm still one who is baptized in the Spirit. I'm still, watch out. I'm still, I'm, yeah, I have, he didn't, come, he didn't give me his Spirit to take him away from me. To be baptized in the Spirit is an eschatological, powerful reality. This is the first time I've done that here. I do this everywhere I go, but not here at Heritage. Didn't get a picture of that, did you? Maybe you did. I'm not going to that church. So I, I, the choice is the promise of his baptism, which will affect me forever, or to face what John says is unquenchable fire. Unquenchable fire. I, you probably think, golly, I wish that wasn't there. That just makes it sound so permanent. So serious. So worth considering carefully.
I, I, I know, I know, I know. Inside people say, well, I think we should take a vote and just vote that John didn't say that or that's not in the Bible. It doesn't work that way. The whole point is we don't, that this is God. This is reality. How we respond to Jesus. Repentance and faith means that he, immer- he takes me and immerses me. The promise is the promise of a baptism in the spirit that transforms my life. Ah, an embrace of heaven that transforms and empowers and sanctifies and begins a work in my life that will la- Paul will later on say that I'm, I live by, I walk in the spirit. I live by the spirit. I keep in step with the spirit. I'm filled with the spirit. I don't quench the spirit. I don't, I don't grieve the spirit. The spirit becomes the guiding person and principle and power in my life. That's what it means to follow Jesus. The alternative, if I choose not to repent, is unquenchable fire. John's audience knew what he meant. He, he was referencing Isaiah 66, 24, at least referencing that. The last verse in Isaiah, that's where it's one of the principal pra- pra- phrases where uh, the rabbis began to understand uh, uh, the, the, the concept of hell and an eternal torment. The Pharisees understood and believed in. They were ardent teachers of the Pharisees taught hell as a place of eternal torment. That didn't start with Martin Luther or the Reformers or anybody else for Augustine. That started with, that really became clarified by the, by the Pharisees. And Jesus talked to them about it, never corrected them. In fact, he doubled down on it as a reality. We understand that place because we've read the book of Revelation and John, and, and John, not the Baptist, but John the Apostle's vision of a lake of fire. Good news, though, in the lake of fire, the devil, the beast, the false prophet, they get thrown to a lake of fire, which will burn forever and ever. Death and Hades gets thrown into that lake that will burn forever and ever. But here's the other part, the last part in verse 15 of, John, of uh, Revelation 20. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. How you and I respond to Jesus determines the outcome of this life and the next. The promise, immersed in the Spirit. The warning, wrath forever. So today, if you and I are standing on the banks of the Jordan River, we hear the only, the only, the only, the, 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 Today's command is not just repent. Don't just make this about a moment or a mood that you're in. But today's command, John says, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Let, become, let, let repent in such a way, let it become so real that your life begins to look like and bear fruit. You, people can see the apples. What about you and me? Is there, where is there need of repentance in your life? See, the idea that, we're, that we can bear fruit in keeping with repentance means that repentance can be part of our lifestyle. I can recognize in my life attitudes and behaviors that are incongruous with the will of God, that are, that are, that are contrary to His will and to His way. And I can and must now bear good fruit by recognizing that and turning it away from it. 
you have attitudes in your life that you are maintaining that are contrary to the will of God? Do you have behaviors that you are protecting and practicing, even privately, that you know are false, that are unpleasing to God? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Is there fruit, evidence, that you've repented?